Bibles. Uh, we're going to continue the Gospel of John, chapter 7. Chapter 7. So everybody remember we just went through chapter 6? Jesus feeding the 5,000. The discourse about the bread of life. Jesus walking on the water, actually Jesus walking on the water first, then the discourse on the bread of life, and he continues his discourse on the bread of life, talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and everybody left. He started with many, many people, thousands probably, and as soon as he got down to the nitty gritty, bye bye, they left. Let's read our text. If you, would you mind standing as we read God's word? I'm going to read the first ten verses. John 7, verses 1 through 10. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So Jesus, so his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Let's pray. And Father, I pray for illumination on our minds and our hearts as I preached your revealed word. Help us to receive what the Spirit is saying through your word in Christ's name. Amen. I'd just like to read a short story from W.J. Hart. A very short story and I think it's relevant to our text tonight. In the late 19th century, a Russian Jew of great learning named Joseph Rabinowitz was sent to Palestine by the Jews to buy land for them. He went to Jerusalem. One day he went up to the Mount of Olives to rest. Someone had told him to take a New Testament as the best guidebook about Jerusalem. The only Christ he had known was the Christ of the Greek and the Roman churches, who were his persecutors. He looked off towards Calvary and thought, why is it that my people are persecuted and cast out? And his heart gave the answer. It must be because we have put to death our Messiah. He lifted his eyes to that Messiah and said, Lord, My Lord and my God. He came down from the mount, a disciple of Jesus Christ. He went home to Russia and erected a synagogue for the Jews over the door, which was written, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God had made that, that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. You know, it's very heartwarming to read about a Jew who comes to faith in Christ. I think, but for the most part, 
Um, most Jews still live in a state of unbelief. Even though there's been pockets of revival amongst the Jews, and we see that, and we see little pockets of revival in little Jewish groups that, that love the Lord uh, pop up here and there. But I think still, for the most part, most of the Jews don't believe. The Jews who died since the time of Christ up until now have missed the opportunity to come to faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. However, it's not just the Jew who is missing the opportunity to come to faith in Christ. It's all people, no matter what ethnic group they're from. Entrance into heaven is only by one thing and one thing only, and that's by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And tonight we're going to see in this text, what unbelief looks like for the Jew as well as for the Gentile. And what I want to ask you tonight, I want you to think about this. That's the reason why we preach. That's the reason why we expound on the word is that you would think. Think. Do you believe Jesus Christ and his word? Even when you stand in the midst of unbelief and doubt. And do you go to him for spiritual life? There's three things I'm, I'm going to speak about, but not all tonight. It's probably going to take three parts. I'm probably going to only get to the first point tonight. Um, the first one is, Jesus went to the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Ingathering. I'm going to use the Feast of Tabernacles. The first part of the chapter is the beginning of the feast beginning of the feast and where Christ encounters unbelief. The second part which we probably will not get to tonight is the middle of the feast where great debate arises. And then the last day of the feast where Jesus gives an invitation in the midst of debate, in the midst of doubt and unbelief he still invites people to come and drink the fountain of life. Three points I want to really hone in on tonight is, are you on the Lord's timetable? He has a timetable. Don't miss the opportunity to believe in God's Son. Missing the opportunity is due to one thing and one thing only, unbelief. When I preached two weeks ago, I finished chapter 6. I don't know how many of you remember. I don't know how many of you were sleeping, but I hope you were awake. And if you remember, Jesus had finished the bread of life discourse, and after that discourse, the result was many of his di disciples stopped following. It was a sad part of the text. His people just stopped following because they didn't want to listen and obey what he was saying. Sounds like a lot of people today. And most of the people were not interested in a Savior who was primarily spiritual, but a Savior of their own liking. That's the kind of Savior they wanted. They wanted a Savior who would feed them and free them from the political oppression that they were experiencing at that time. However, Jesus did not come for that, nor did he, as Dr. Carson says, shape his comments to pander their taste. In other words, Jesus didn't change the message to please them. Neither should you ever change the message of the gospel to please people. Sometimes it's very uncomfortable but just stick to the message of the gospel of Christ. Amen. He came to 
free them from spiritual oppression and to give them eternal life by way of his atoning death on the cross. But most, at that time, rejected him. And the drama of that rejection continues in the seventh chapter, which we will look at in part tonight. In order to properly interpret any text of scripture, we need to understand things like words. We need to understand things like context, um, historical and cultural setting, and the author's purpose of writing for what he wrote. It's called, in, in a theological term, it's called hermeneutics. And I don't expect you to remember that word, but it, it's principles you use to interpret scripture. Um, and it keeps you from going off the track, from, from misinterpreting scripture. Um, so one of the things is the author's purpose of writing what he wrote. And John gives us that purpose in, in, the, in the 20th chapter, the 30th verse, and the, and the 30 and the 30th verse. He says, Now John did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he gives us the purpose of writing this book. And if you're ever studying the Gospel of John, that's the purpose of the book. And you should remember that purpose, that by he was trying to get people, his readers, to believe him. And that by believing him, you will have life in his name. That's the purpose of this gospel. We also need to look at what was going on in, at, the, at that time in chapter 7, the historical and cultural setting. There was a major feast going on. Verse 1 and 2 says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeks to kill him. Now the Jewish, the Jews' feast of the boots was at hand. The opening words, <coughs> two things I want to show you in that opening verse, or the opening two verses, is the opening words after this probably refer to the events described in chapter 6, which took place around the time of Passover in April. And then you have chapter 7. And since chapter 7 opens at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles in October, there was a gap of about six months between chapter 6 and chapter 7. That's one thing I want you to keep in mind as I'm going through this text. And the other thing is, whenever you read the Jews in John's Gospel, it's talking about Jesus' enemies. It represents Jesus' enemies. So let me try to paint the picture of you to make all this stuff make sense. And what was going on in the opening scene in chapter 7. It is probably about six months after the miracle of the feeding of 5,000 um, and the bread of life discourse. And verse 1 says Jesus went about in Galilee because although there was this wonderful festive time celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus remained in Galilee purposely avoiding Judea where the celebration took place. Why did he remain in Galilee? Well, remember what I said, what the Jews represent? Jesus' enemies. Guess who was at the celebration in Judea? Jesus' enemies. The Jews were waiting to take his life, but it was not his time. But it also gave Christ an opportunity to converse with his earthly brothers, his physical earthly brothers, his half-brothers. Joseph and Mary had other children, and Matthew 13, 55 lists their names. Joseph, James, Simon, and Judas. Not Judas is carried, the one who betrayed him, but Judas was also called, called Jude. And be, but before I talk about this conversation Jesus had with his brothers, I need to talk about the Feast of Tabernacles. 
so we can catch the flavor of the text. There was this, there were three annual feasts um, each year that every Jewish male who lived in within twenty miles of Jerusalem was required to attend. The first was Passover, which recognized the beginning of the grain harvest in spring. The second was the Feast of Pentecost, seven weeks later, which celebrated the end of the grain harvest. And the last was the uh, was uh, Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, which celebrated the autumn, or harvest of trees and vine, or grapes and olives. And since the crop in autumn had to be protected, what the farmers did was they built shelters in the fields. And theologically, this reminded the Jews of the temporary shelters of the de desert wanderings um, after the Exodus. Remember when uh, God delivered the Jewish people out of Egypt and they went into the desert? Well, they built temporary shelters in the fields. <clears throat> so the feast was twofold. It was not only to set to praise God for the harvest, but to study the time of the desert wandering and its meaning. This meant a lot to them. It was big. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, the Feast of Tabernacles was the most important of the three. The feast was a tremendous celebration. It was unlike the 4th of July. <clears throat> I remember um, when I was young, a young uh, man, a young child, I should say, I remember the, uh, the 4th of July was a great celebration time. I remember my parents would take me to my uncle's house and there would be barbecues. And, you know, at that time, the... the uh, the law wasn't strict with the fireworks. It was like a war zone. I mean, people were shooting off rockets. My father would be sitting with my uncles on the front porch of my uncle's house, and they'd be smoking their cigars and throwing the cherry bombs out in the street, and we'd be shooting rockets off, and food and fun and festivity. It was just great. Well, that was like this. That's, this is what they were experiencing. This was a great time of celebration. <clears throat> it lasted for seven days during the Jewish month Tishri. Uh, that's between September and October. And on the eighth day, there was a special festival assembly. <clears throat> During this time, shelters sprang up in the most unlikely places. Rooftops, alleyways, um, sometimes even in the courts of the temple. And the people dressed in their Sabbath best. So this was a big to-do for them. And at the heart of the celebration was a daily rite, which I think we need to understand in order to catch the flavor of this chapter. Each morning, the people would gather at the temple, <clears throat> excuse me, carrying a citrus fruit in the left hand, which was a reminder of the bountiful land that God had brought them into. And in their right hand, they would carry what they called a lulab, which was a combination of three tree branches, a palm, a willow, and a myrtle branch. And this was symbolic of the stages of their ancestors' journey through the wilderness. And the people would follow the priest to the to the uh, pool of Siloam, chanting some psalms and waving, waving their branches. Then the priest would dip the pitcher he was carrying into the water, and the people would recite Isaiah 12.3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And this was a clear reference to John 7.37, when Jesus cried out, which we'll get to in a couple of, the next couple of times I speak. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the feasts. He's the fulfillment of the ceremonial law. He's the fulfillment of the moral law. He's the fulfillment of the judicial law. And all the things that God required, He fulfilled on your behalf and my behalf. And He fulfilled the Feast of Tabernacles. It was about Him 
Everything in the Old Testament, every feast in the Old Testament, every ceremonial law, every everything in the Old Testament pointed to one and one only, and that was Christ. The crowd would then march back to the temple, entering through the water gate to the blast of the priest's trumpet. And the priest would then circle the altar once, go up to the altar with the other priest and pour out the water. And while this, all this is going on, all this festivity is going on, Jesus stayed behind in Galilee where a conversation takes place with his own flesh and blood. His brothers. And this is the beginning of the feast. The very beginning of the feast. Jesus is still in Galilee. And Jesus encounters unbelief from his own physical brothers. See, they were on man's timetable, not God's. And that stemmed from one thing, unbelief. Listen to verses 3 through 9 again. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For, this is important, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. The first applicable point I want to propose to you is this. You want the Lord's timetable. Don't miss the opportunity to believe God's Son. And this is for Christians as well as non-Christians. Missing opportunities, and I'll explain what that means, is due from one thing. If we miss opportunities, it's because of unbelief. Jesus' brothers... They recognized his power to perform miracles, so they egged him. Um, they egged him on to use his powers at the feast. Uh, the feast in Jerusalem, as I said, was a big event. Probably thousands were there, and what a better place to display his miraculous power than the grand stage in Jerusalem. If you've ever been to a parade, um, there's a section in the parade called a review stand. And this review stand, or sometimes it's called the bleacher, is not for public seating. The seating is reserved for parade honorees and sponsors among the other contingents that hold official roles in parade operations. And all who participate in marching expositions will pass in front of this review stand as they march down the avenue to be viewed by the officials. Well, Jesus' brothers wanted him to be viewed by Jerusalem's review stand and who was that? The Jews. All the Jews at the feast. Leave here. Go to Judea. That your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, Jesus. If you want to be king, if you want to be the Messiah, you need to go to Jerusalem. Do your works down there. This reveals one thing. Their doubt and their unbelief. There were no different than the unbelieving Jews. The word if. If you do these things, Jesus, in verse 4, Dr. John MacArthur says, foreshadows the mocking unbelief that Jesus faced on the cross. 
Remember when he was on the cross, he said, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. And it's also reminiscent of, of Satan when he said, when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. So this verse may well be, as Dr. MacArthur says, not just unbelief, but mocking unbelief from his own brothers. How that must have hurt the Lord. They wanted Jesus to show himself openly and publicly to the world, meaning show yourself to everybody. But Jesus was not interested at all in showing himself to the world, at least not the way they were thinking. He was on a different timetable, as I said before. They wanted a display of signs and wonders, but that would not ensure genuine faith. Signs and wonders and miracles never ensure genuine faith. I know because I've been there. I remember, to go off a little bit, I remember I belonged to a church that used to have Benny Hinn come to the church. And I remember I was a very, very, very young Christian, maybe a year in the Lord. And I remember hearing about this miracle crusade my church was sponsoring church I belonged to at that time. And I remember telling a friend about it. Come on, you got to come see this. You got to come see this. We went to the church service and of course hundreds and hundreds of people were there and Benny Hinn was there speaking and praying for people and I walked out very disappointed. My friend was scratching his head almost to say like, why did you bring me here? Signs, wonders, all that do not ensure Genuine faith. Never has and never will. John already tells us that in the 6th chapter. In the 14th and 15th verse and the 26th verse, verse. And he says this. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, what they should have said was, you are Lord and repented of their sins and cried out for mercy. But this is what they said. This indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to make him, about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And in verse 26 he says to them, Truly, truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So Jesus was not going to show himself to the world in Jerusalem according to to his brothers, or anyone else. However, he was going to show himself to the world according to God the Father's plan, and at the proper time. How? By way of the cross. Dr. D.A. Carson says, in one sense, Jesus has no intention of showing himself to the world, and yet in another sense, the reader who presses on to the rest of the gospel discovers that it is in Jerusalem where Jesus reveals himself most dramatically, not in the spectacular miracles the brothers want, but in the ignominy of the cross, the very cross by which Jesus draws all men unto himself and becomes savior of the world. There is no doubt that his own brothers did not believe in him because verse 5 tells us the reason. His brothers pushed him into going Judea to display his works for his, not even his brothers believed in him. So therefore, Jesus now gives further explanation why their thinking was wrong. He says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Now, before we go any further, I need to explain the Greek word 
for time. The Greek word for time in this passage is kairos, which means an occasion, an opportunity, a, a decisive point. There's another word in, in the Bible called chronos. Another word rendered time also, but always focus on the extent of time, not the point or specific hour of time. In other words, it's a period of time. So in other words, Jesus wasn't saying his time to go to the feast was 9 a.m. tomorrow morning, but his time, his decisive point, his opportunity was not yet. He was talking about opportunity, not a specific time. Why? Because Jesus was on his father's timetable. And he would not let his brother's worldly ideas dictate his actions. His actions were determined solely by the sovereign father who orchestrates everything in his time. And we need to remember that. God orchestrates everything in his time. If you remember, the Lord responded similarly to his mother at the wedding at Cana. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother seemed to think that Jesus could fix it. Remember that? Remember that? Yes. <laughs> and he did. He did fix it. But he would not allow the pressure from his own mother to reveal himself prematurely. The right time was set before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ would, at the final Passover, reveal himself openly and publicly and declare that he indeed is the Messiah which would lead eventually to his death. See, God is sovereign. He does what he wants when he wants. He is not controlled by anyone or anything. His thoughts are not our thoughts. History belongs to him. When Christ, when Christ died on the cross, it was predetermined by the Father. It was at the exact, precise moment in time in history. Listen to Acts 2. Verses 22 to 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to to be held by it. Jesus was delivered up by the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. It was his Kairos time in history when he would actually die. In God's, time, in God's economy, did you ever hear that expression, timing is everything? In God's economy, timing is everything. The Jews were waiting to kill Jesus at the, Fastover, at the, at the Feast of the Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles However, it was not his time. The contrast to that was his brother's time was, was always here. At that point, they were still part of the unbelieving world. They were ignorant, ignorantly not concerned about God's timetable. They were not concerned about his plans. They were not concerned about his purposes. And the reason they lacked the appointed time is because they belonged to the world. They were thinking like the world. And that is why Jesus said in verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus said in John's Gospel, in chapter 15, verse 19, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because Jesus wasn't of the world, the world hated him. The ultimate reason 
for the world's hatred of Jesus that testifies that its deeds are evil. When you're sharing the gospel with someone and you tell them that they're sinners or you expose their sin to them, they don't like that. They didn't like when Jesus did it, nor they like when you do it. And as Christ's followers, you will be hated by the same world because you are associated with Jesus, who is supremely hated. They hated him, they're going to hate you. And because you, as you increase in the intimacy with God, and as you increase in love and obedience, and your fruitfulness grows, you will have the same effect on the world as your master. You will be, you will, you, you will appear as aliens to them. Verse 8 and 9 says, Jesus said to them, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after this, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. So anyway, Jesus now sends his brothers to the feast because the, their timing was so off and Jesus stayed behind because his hour had not yet come. However, just as Jesus rebuked his mother and then changed the water into wine, verse 10 says, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but he went privately. Was Jesus lying? Telling his disciples, hey, I'm not going, and then went? Of course not. He was not changing the water. Into, well, he said the same thing at the wedding at Cana. He said, woman, has, my time has not yet come. And then he changes the water into wine. So he wasn't lying. What was happening was, he was not changing the water into wine because his mother said so. Even because his mother asked. Nor was he going to the feast because his brother said to. He wasn't saying no to Mary, but I believe he was saying two things to her. You or anyone else do not determine when my messianic ministry begins. Only my father. And the other thing he was trying to tell Mary was, relate to me now as the Messiah, not your son. And likewise, Jesus, after his, brother, after his brothers went, he went. The difference is, he went, they went in the beginning of the feast. He went in the middle of the feast. And he went privately. Dr. Carson says this also. He says the assumption in this verse is that the Father has signaled Jesus in some way. So Jesus goes to Jerusalem, leaving Galilee for the last time before the cross. Why did he go up secretly? Because it says it. The, the Jewish authorities were looking and keeping a sharp lookout for him. They wanted to kill him. But remember, his time was not yet. And as you continue through John's gospel, the Jewish leaders get more and more hostile towards Jesus eventually taken him before the Sanhedrin, who eventually tried him and, and eventually uh, sentenced him and put him to death by, by crucifixion. Yes, God's uh, perfect timing and perfect plan. By the way, it took the resurrection of Jesus to finally convince the brothers that he was the Son of God, the Messiah. They became believers. Even though at that point in time, they were not believers at that point in time, they were trying to tell Jesus to do what the Father was not telling him to do. Eventually, they became believers. When the, 20, when the 120 believers were in the upper room, uh, waiting to receive power from on high, guess who was amongst them? In Acts 1.14, Jesus' brothers. Okay, so I gave you a lot of information there. How do we bridge the gap between then and now? Especially when our cultures... 2,000 years apart and so different. I mean, 
You and I don't live in Palestine. You and I don't really celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. How is this relevant for your life? I think the common denominator between then and now is the word believe. Do you believe Christ? What he says, his brothers at that point in time didn't believe him. Just because you're a Christian, I still need to ask you that question. Do you believe in Christ? Do you believe his word? Are you believing him on a regular basis? Are you continuing? You know, Jesus said, if you're truly my disciples, what did he say? You'll continue in my word. Do you want God's timetable or your own? Do you want the Messiah who will perform miracle signs and wonders? A genie? A Santa Claus? I don't know. What, what do you want to call him? Who meets your wants and your needs? Or maybe, maybe to be your political leader. Jesus didn't come and promise to heal your body. And sometimes he does. He didn't come to fix your marriage. And sometimes he does. He didn't come to find you a job. And sometimes he does. He came to quench your thirsty souls. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So let me ask you again, are you on his timetable? He already went to the cross 2,000 years ago. Okay? His Kairos time to die for the sins of the church, of the world, came 2,000 years ago. What is his timetable today? I think it's what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 3, where he says three times... Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. If you're a believer, you really don't have the ability to understand God's word. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. Nor does the unbeliever have the ability to obey his spirit? Romans 8, 5-9 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if you've never come to Christ, the time is right now. 1 Corinthians 6.2 says, in, the, in, a favorable, in a favorable time, I listen to you. And in the, day, in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is is the day of salvation. Don't wait. If you don't know Christ, don't wait. Don't wait. It's the, what they call the kairos time. The opportunity is now. And those of you who are true followers of Christ have the ability to follow God's word 
or God's timetable, I should say, and his timetable is this, his revealed will, because you have his word and his spirit. His word informs you to what his will is, and his spirit empowers you to obey it with joy. Don't miss his timetable with disobedience. If you're a Christian here tonight, you could miss many opportunities. Don't miss it. And God is speaking through his word and he's teaching you and encouraging you and, and building you up in his word. Don't disobey his word. So this message was for unbelievers. If you don't know Christ, now is the day of salvation. And if you don't know Christ, obey him on a regular basis. Don't miss the opportunity. In Christ's name.